Welcome to Earful of Dirt, the Major League Rugby Podcast. Each episode, your hosts bring you news, views, and abuse from America's professional rugby union, along with all the latest on the USA national team. Now, with all that said, let's get on with the show. Oh, <laughs> we're live. Uh, welcome to your Full of Dirt podcast. I'm Aaron Castro. You can find me at the Strobro. Um, I am joined, uh, as per usual. Uh, Dan Murphy says, as always, but um, <laughs> I figure sometimes it's, it's not always, as always, but uh, by Craig Ridelli. You can find him at American RFC. Um, Almost and, Someone came south side of the virtual wall, or we went to the north side, get some We the North action. Derek Brissett, uh, you can find him at Brissett the Jet on uh, Twitter. Um, he is also on Instagram somewhere, so if you want to, you want to see what's up, um, see what he does. Uh, you know, there hasn't been a lot of sports stuff going on, but he also writes for Layman Sports, which covers Toronto area sports. Um, so... First, I mean, generally, Derek, you know, a question that you guys ask your guests all the time, but, you know, it's the same shit. I guess I said that, whatever. Um, down <laughs> here, uh, most people get into rugby really late, um, and especially people that are fans, uh, I would say. And we're going to touch on this, some aca- an academy topic a bit later, which I'll go into perhaps a diatribe that may not be the same, but I listened to your, your podcast, which is why I wanted to talk about this subject anyways. Um, but generally, how, how did you get into rugby? Yeah. So when I was in high school, so grade nine, um, we, our school didn't have a football team. And so I guess in the year that I got there in grade nine, we had a, a guy named Brandon Timko. Um, he decided that he wanted to start a rugby team at the school. Um, so essentially with like no football or really, unless you were good at hockey, our school had a pretty decent hockey team. So there wasn't a whole lot of like contact sport and stuff because there was no football team. And so a lot of guys that maybe were kind of interested in playing that decided, Hey, let's go play, try rugby out. So it kind of ended up being cool. Cause it was like essentially 25 guys that had zero experience at all in rugby, all kind of learning it together for the very first time. Um, so there was some fun, um, like, I guess in that first year, there's some fun, like, practices early when you're just trying to, like, learn the rules. So I think if anybody knew any of the rules going into it, it was you can only throw the ball backwards. And maybe you have to touch the ball down to score a try. That would be about the extent of, I think, everybody's knowledge at the time. Um, so we ended up just learning the game together. We started, you know, as we kind of, like, started, like, tackling or, like, learning how to, like, the skills, throwing, passing, kicking scrums learning all the rules and stuff and then like eventually you know timco just kind of brought us in and i think the all blacks played ireland at some point that year um but he essentially just brought us in and was like this is what the game is supposed to look like um in case you guys are wondering and essentially you know just kind of everyone saw like the haka for the first time in like one room which was actually kind of crazy to see like the the insane like it's kind of intimidating and nuts if you've never seen it before, completely unaware that it's about to happen. Um, and then kind of just sort of played all through high school on that team. Um, we magically in that first year, we magically somehow won our first game. 
um, which probably gave us way <laughs> too high hopes because we went winless the rest of the season. But it was whatever. It's like one in seven. It's fine. Um, so that ended up being a lot of fun. And then just kind of kept playing all through um, like all through high school. I didn't really watch rugby too much until the 2011 World Cup because um, I was at college, but our school was on strike. So like, or yeah, like there was a staff strike. So okay, I was like, right. yeah, yeah. So the staff at the school was on strike. So there's a bunch of like, but it was all like support staff. So it was all just yeah, it was weird. Um, so it essentially kind of left you with nothing. Like in the uh, like in our dorm room, it was just like everyone just kind of had cable and stuff. The internet connection was shoddy nice. because the staff was on strike, and that was the 2011 World Cup, and it was like. Even though the time the games were all in New Zealand, but it was like I didn't have anywhere to go because school was on strike. So just basically watched almost every game of that World Cup wow. and just kind of became became a huge fan of the sport and kind of kept watching ever since. Uh, the the talent for the game didn't really transcend how much I enjoyed watching it. Um, so I just kind of kind of kept watching it. Played a little. Um, played a year for the Brampton Beavers club, like you 19, I think it was, but haven't really played it a whole lot since then, but always just kind of ended up being like a passionate fan for it now. So you didn't play for the Vikings. No, did not play for the Vikings actually. Yeah. Like I'm from Oshawa originally moved and I've kind of moved around a little bit, but when I was in high school, I was actually um, in Brampton. So I was kind of, that was where my uh, first exposure to rugby was. Yeah, like my first exposure was in high school. It was for like someone else's group project. And there were like 30 of us. So we actually played 15 aside like two weekends in a row. Didn't know what I was fucking didn't know what I was doing at all. Um, generally, I don't think any of us knew what we were doing. But there was like, there were some crazy good athletes that showed up for this thing. Like, you know, like literally, you know, all CIF water polo players and football players. We were like, yeah, let's form a club. Cause there, there still isn't any youth rugby in that part of LA County right now. Like, yeah. like SoCal is actually, there's actually a lot of youth rugby, but it's all really beach cities. There isn't a whole lot um, when you go inland and then um, or what's college. We had a rugby team, but I didn't play when I was in college. And then the biggest exposure I had was Oh nine. Um, I was on, I've told this story probably eight times. I don't know. I was at the French military Academy and obviously uh, it was amazing to watch the six nations with a bunch of French army guys. Um, And that was like my real like implantation of, of rugby into my brain. Yeah. Definitely watched Wales beat Ireland in an Irish pub in Rennes, France. And I was definitely hammered. Um, and then um, there's a, they have a spring exercise usually every year called Spring Victory. And the uh, huh, Sandhurst Army Firsts, which like, so the way they have intakes, they do their thing, just it's, they do their whole military academy um, for army officers in a full year. But uh, and not rather than over like a four year process, like we do in, in the States. And, uh, so each intake has sports teams. So the army first, uh, graduating cadets, uh, play against the sincere Lecole team, which is the French military Academy. It's, a, but they play the combined side. So they play, uh, the, there's like three different schools. Um, there's sincere and then there's, uh, 
Ecole Militaire Ante Arm, which is um, NCOs becoming officers, which is a kind of a cool sort of system. Um, and you combine the best uh, of Sincere uh, to play against this, the Sandhurst Army first. And watching that game was really got me into rugby. Like, wow, that was cool. But um, yeah, so uh, it's always interesting to, to listen to because you guys are doing some great work up north uh, with your interview series, getting guys, you know, just finding, you know, different people that want to, uh, that are talking about their story in rugby, because it's very similar. Like whether, whether we like it or not, uh, you like the same, the, sto- the stories I would say are the same, um, except I would say that, uh, you know, hockey is the second, is the largest sport and football is probably the second biggest sport. Uh, in Canada. And so those are the things that people are exposed to the most. And then down here, it's obviously the biggest behemoth is, is, is the sport of football. And so it's just interesting to, to see those stories sort of cross over. Um, but uh, so to get into tonight, there's a lot of stuff going on and, you know, I, I think we took a conscious decision to take a break because, um, you know, as we'll find out when we come back regularly, a bunch of us have had a lot of life changes and obviously 2020 has been a crazy year. Craig is having a second child. That's, that's how much like 20. Any day now. I might leave this podcast because my wife's water breaks. So you never know. <laughs> uh, so Craig, uh, did you have to show up to the Bronco test after shoveling that field with the team yesterday? No, not involved. I'm strictly a retired uh, journalist civilian at this point. I don't even know what a Bronco test is. Uh, but I did see the social media, and it looks rough. And uh, that's good stuff, though. That's uh, yeah, it's like some clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose type of uh, team bonding stuff. So I, I appreciate that. I hope, hope it had that impact. I, however, was warm and dry. That's why we, <laughs> that's why we build domes up here. Then you, you just snows on the dome. Is that just another word for an igloo? <laughs> no, igloos igloos are domes made of ice. It's a specific type of dome. That's what it. That's what an igloo is. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, preseason has started uh, for most clubs. I think uh, some teams have uh, are still trickling in players and still going through some protocols, and we'll we'll sort of get to that. Um, cause it is a topic and I've sort of pieced it together. I don't really have an official document in front of me, even though disclaimer, I do work for major league rugby in some capacity. Um, but I don't work, uh, over there. Uh, so I've basically just pieced most of this together through conversations with coaches and GMs. And it's, I mean, they've talked about it on other podcasts too. So it's not like a, it's a secret. It's just, you know, putting a bunch of pieces of the puzzle together, but we'll, we'll get to that. So um, there was a big game this, this weekend. Um, it involved a brown egg. Um, so uh, what do you, what did you guys think? I'm just, I'm forever a Tom Brady. Uh, I don't know the, the term that the, the young people use these days, but I'm a hater, I guess. Is that it? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not, I don't ship Tom Brady. What's the, what's the opposite of, standing or shipping i, I don't know but whatever the opposite straight is, hater you're just a straight because you're a giants fan i'm a giants fan yeah 
which doesn't give me reason to hate Brady since we own Brady. But uh, I don't know. I just, <laughs> yeah, seeing him all these years, I've, I've always uh, been of the school of thought that he benefited from a Belichick system. I'm always talking a lot of smack about how he's not that good. My in-laws are from Boston, and they, you know, idolize Brady. So I'm always out there saying Brady's overrated. Yeah, he just happened to catch you know, be lightning in a bottle. At, at family so, gatherings. Yeah, well, this is going to be <laughs> – the next one's going to be rough <laughs> now that Brady won another Super Bowl in Tampa Bay. So I had to eat my, I had to eat my words a bit uh, over the weekend. It was unpleasant. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the things that I was surprised at was, or not really surprised at, because I watched this kid do this when he was at Texas Tech. Like, I, I thought by the end, by the time Patrick Mahomes was drafted, if that, he was a can't miss straight up, um, the fact that he actually went when he went in the first round and didn't go earlier, um, was a was very surprising. But guess what? Can't miss doesn't mean can't miss because, um, Tom Brady was a was projected as a complete miss right and that's one of the things i, w- I think i had a conversation with um cj devette who is the for- a former analyst and coach for the gil i guess what was the austin elite um now gil Gronies. we were having a conversation on twitter about it and the, the reality is you can't quantify work ethic like when once you get into a professional environment where you're getting paid and you are completely held accountable. I mean, I'm not say, like I don't. I would say players in in the collegiate world um, are they held accountable in some way? Yeah, but their their livelihood isn't on the line. Um, the, what's at stake is their position and maybe their scholarship. Although not anymore. Um, in the at least in the Power Five, a player gets a a scholarship for for to five years. If they redshirt, they get it for a fifth. So um, it's, you can't even pull a scholarship from a player, even if you cut them from the team um, now these days, which is actually, which is a good thing. I think um, it, it gives coaches in a sense, um, you would see this in basketball uh, down here. Um, coaches would come in and they release all players, like all of them. Um, it was, it was kind of wild. I think John Calipari did that at Kentucky. It was pretty insane when he came in uh, and did that. But, I, you know, you have these guys like Ryan Leaf was a projected can't miss and just Jamarcus Russell, yeah. Jamarcus Russell, <laughs> you know, all these guys I work out and there are low round hits. Um, there could also be, in theory, a quarterback who completely benefits from his coach's system and rides those tailwinds in a weak division <laughs> for a decade, and then who goes to another team and, and benefits from another system? Oh my! Um, cards in the whole game. Those well, are also theoretically possible, but well, this is what this is what I mean. Tom Brady had a good, very good game. Um, yeah. The connection, the the connection between him and uh, you know over two Rob yards, Rob so Gronkowski. Uh, is something that is you know, can't caught, received sixty yards. Yeah, he had sixty yards receiving. It's not like yeah, it's not like he was lighting up the record books. No, but he had two touchdowns. Well, uh, sure. You know. I mean, that's obviously they scored the touchdowns so they won. But did that mean Brady had a great game, or 
Yeah, he, no, it was he like marched ninety yards down the field on penalty flags, and then he found Gronk. Yeah, guess what, man? Down. You play to win the game. Good old Herm over at ASU. He's full of quotes that I love to use. Um, the biggest thing was, as much as I think offensively they were going to to win because that def- that defense for Kansas City either leaked like a sieve or committed penalties like a sieve. You know, they just, I mean. Classic the, the, penalty sieve. <laughs> the, the, I mean, it was they were pretty bad. Uh, the biggest thing was, I mean, if you look at, the same game plan on defense that the Giants did to win their two Super Bowls against the Patriots, it was the exact same game plan. You had a, a an outlandishly strong front four. You drop two high safeties, and you just make the quarterback run all day, and you beat them up. And even when they were beat up, even when Patrick Mahomes was getting three guys falling on him at a time, he was still get he was still getting the ball out on target, which I found he extremely was. impressive. He was making throws. I don't think Mahomes could have done anything else. I mean, his guys were dropping balls. He had no time. The only thing that, you know you, you might question is towards the end, it was like he would take a snap and just run fifty yards back. It was like he didn't even look around. He just took it and ran. There was, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the I mean the game plan was between Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy, and their offensive line coach, but their commitment to to just doing five down linemen was the worst thing I've ever seen. Like they never went double tights. They never went a blocking tight end and a blocking running back. I think they were um, down two starters. On yeah, to, yeah. Yeah. So tackles. in theory, like if two of your starting offensive linemen go down, you usually throw in a blocking tight end on a lot of packages and they just were committed to the five down linemen thing. And it just was never going to work against that front four. Um, but um, so we did a poll uh on uh, the Earful of Dirt social media. Apparently, there's no longer a poll function for uh, for pages on Facebook, so this is annoying. Um, we did have a topic. Uh, you know, Alex Cano, uh, thank you for participating. But uh, I-, I was surprised at how many people uh, voted no in this poll. Actually, maybe I'm not because some people aren't about um, having uh, crossover athletes uh, for the Eagles, for whatever reason, I, I'm. But the the overwhelming answer, I think it was seventy three percent to. Where is this? I mean, it disappeared. I feel like an idiot. Um, what I think it was seventy three percent to twenty seven percent in favor of if Gronk called us, we would say yes for him to be an Eagles camp. Yeah. Um. I mean. Who is saying no to that? I was going to say, I feel like even if he sucks, it's worth it for the marketing. It, that would it's have totally worth yeah. it for the marketing, if nothing else. We'd probably get more sponsorships after Gronk being there one day than all of the previous efforts of USA Rugby sponsorship combined. There were some, like, because there are some things about Gronk that people don't like. They don't like that he parties a lot. But if you've ever listened to Bill Belichick's, like, anytime he talks about Gronk. Rugby. Yeah, it's like. Or played rugby. Yeah, yeah, I'm not really worried about that. But the, the the work ethic of that guy is actually not questioned in New England. It was like, oh, he parties, he shows up to work on time, don't care. Like, you know, with the level of athlete that Gronkowski is, the the only issue I think you'd have if you actually did try to convert him, um, 
you know, was uh, was his back issues. Like he has some some big time niggles, which is why he actually retired and took you know two years off. But um, this is so beside the point, though. Who cares if he has back issues? Who cares if he <laughs> sucks at rugby? If Rob Gronkowski wants to come to USA Eagles camp, he's coming to camp. If he wants to play 10, he gets some reps in 10. I mean, he's a media frenzy <laughs> that needs media attention. It's not um, like saying he's going to start in the World Cup. You know, he just wants to come to camp. He's coming to camp. He could be paralyzed. From from the chat, Nicholas Sarabia, uh, yeah, man, um, all about that college rugby. So if you uh, somehow happen to be a college student and at San Jose State, um, you better go watch at least or go play for uh, the men's and women's rugby programs at SJSU. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't understand why people wouldn't be about having an athlete uh, the level that Gronk is just to, if he actually was, cause I, I seriously think given his actual work ethic that he would come, he would find out what kind of fitness he would need for rugby and he would get in that shape as much as he could. Oh yeah. And uh, his former teammate is um, Nate Ebner. I think he would know he could ask someone like in his internal, in his phone, he could be like, Hey Nate, uh, so this rugby thing, um, I, I'm, I'm serious about it. I, I don't, that's not how he talks, but I'm just being like dumb jock, dumb big jock. Um, but I'm sure he would show up to camp and if you just let him hang out for a couple of weeks and you have him hit some rucks, you might, it might just be a media circus and you'd have actual media following an Eagles camp, or you might have a high level athlete that you can throw in for 10, 10 to 15 minutes in a game. And if he got capped, it would be even bigger yeah. with media. But it's just a it's just a funny I mean, premise. I a, I, if, if the poll said, "Do you think Gronkowski would ever be capped?" I would be a hard no. Yeah, I, I, I would <laughs> I be mean, a no because I don't think he's gonna come to camp. But uh, um, the player, the, okay. So if the one player on on Sunday that you would pick automatic, like that you would think could actually do something, Devin White, or well, well, there's also Vita Bay, which. I'm pretty sure he played rugby when he was in high school in California and was a 280 pound, six foot five running back. I mean, Jason Pierre Paul was a basketball player and a freak athlete. He picked up football at like the college level, you know, college age. Like we were talking about how we pick up rugby late. That's when JPP started playing football. He's a freak. And I, I, I he might be at the top of my list of who played Sunday for uh, potential rugby guys. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I would. So, where would you put um, Gronk um, on the Gronk field? Would probably be an eight, maybe. Yeah, I, I'm thinking. That's I'm what thinking, I was kind of thinking. I'm thinking eight. Yeah, um, and you just give him the ball, and yeah. you have him run around. Really, I, you know, he likes contact, so he can probably tackle a bunch too. So, yeah, I was just gonna say. I mean, I, I don't want to step on our own uh, script here for getting to the Glendale Academy, but I, I think. My inclination is that defensive players make better crossovers to rugby because I think offensive players have gone a lot of years of football without making any tackles. Um, I think that might be a, a hard skill to pick back up, uh, whereas defend, you know, defender player 
catch the ball, run with the ball. It's pretty basic human athlete skills that I think a lot of people have. I think that a lot of people have this resistance because of the fitness for rugby. I think fitness is the easiest thing to train with an elite level athlete of that kind. It's the spatial awareness and the ball skills that could be difficult um, to, to get where you need to go. And, you know, we're going to touch on something like that later. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it's America and it's, it's football. And I think, you know, we should kind of understand what's going on, but like there, there is a rugby player on the, on that pitch for, for Tampa. And that was, that was Vita Bay. And, uh, like I looked at his, uh, I think no Dan power had his high school film. It was like on CBS. Um, and he put it on his Insta story and literally as a senior in high school, he was a 280 pound, six foot five running back. Yikes. <laughs> and, and, and the thing was, is like, he, like, he didn't look slow. He was like, when he carried the ball, he was fast. I was like, Oh my God, that's, that's, a, I would not want to try to tackle that. Um, but yeah. Um, so one of the things that's gotten me excited and I think it's probably gotten everyone excited was the other major sporting event that happened this last weekend. How did you guys like the six nations? Loved it. Great. Uh, great opening weekend of the six nations. Uh, yeah. Loved it. Derek. To you. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's it. Yeah. No, I, th- I thought it was, I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought the, uh, I think like fr- France, Italy, a bit of a blowout, but some of the tries that France scored during that game, especially some of the plays that DuPont made, I thought were like incredibly entertaining. Um, they play a really like when France gets going, I find they can be a really fun team to watch with a lot of, you know, they get those offloads in, they get some of the kicks behind too and stuff. And when they get, you know, when, when they're playing their style of game, it can be a lot of fun. Um, it's always nice to see, you know, some droughts end too. So Scotland getting a win over England was nice to watch. And then, you know, I thought uh, the Ireland Wales game I thought was kind of interesting. So like it was kind of it was interesting to see how well Ireland did at actually holding. I thought on. both teams were very bad. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think Ireland played better with fourteen people on the pitch. They did, they did play better with fourteen people. <laughs> yeah, and I couldn't, and it was just. And especially like the play at the end of the game was kind of weird too because it was like Wales kicked the ball back to Ireland to give them that other chance, and then oh, who's it? Just... Burn, Burns that kicked it out on the full like off the, the penalty there. So, so they did. So they yeah. There was one yeah. in there was one in regulation with Johnny Sexton where he kicked the ball dead. That was bad. Um, and then because that could have put them that could have put them ahead, right? And mm-hmm. then Billy Burns um, kicks the ball dead. And I'm just like, you're cut. <laughs> I, I understand that's that's a bit ruthless, but um, I, at this level, it's just you can't do that with where with where they were on the field with where with that penalty. That was you have to kick to touch a hundred percent of the time. Yeah, there's, um, there's there's no reason to risk kicking it dead there. I mean. You know, air, you know, five meters further away from the end goal. So you don't have that, you know, that danger. After they've done so much work to get put themselves in a position for the win in like the 84th minute or whatever it was at that point. Um, yeah, real shame. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, 
I do think that was a red card uh, by Omaha. Oh, so, straight up. I mean, yeah, I think it's like the, it's almost like the perfect example of why this should be a red card. Really, we have these zero tolerance, you know, contact to the head red cards. To me, it wasn't like it was a, a dirty play. He wasn't going in to hurt somebody. He was just trying to make a big hit. Yeah, so he kind of recklessly threw himself into a rug, and he happened to catch a guy who was falling down, and he hit him in the face. And that's exactly the type of thing that causes head injuries. And it's not like, oh, it's a it's bad behavior or dirty play. It's just people have to learn not to take not to be reckless in that way uh, when they're playing. They have to keep that that type of contact in control. And that's how you, a long term, that's how you reduce, I hope, uh, you know, brain injuries from, from the sport. So, uh, you know, I feel bad for him because obviously uh, I don't think he meant to do something dangerous, but he was <laughs> reckless and, uh, and he deserved a red card. We've adjusted the laws a lot to clean, I would say, professionalize and clean up the sport itself. But I wouldn't call, uh, as much as I wouldn't call the, like what Peter Romani did dirty, I would definitely call it reckless, but I think there is a lack of verbiage in the law book that, because in, in the NFL rule book, you have specific things that mention defenseless players um, in the, in the law book uh, for, for rugby, you like uh, the only thing I think where a player is considered defenseless is a player in the air. Um, whereas, um, that Welsh player was defenseless. Um, he like was not like purposely driving forward at, at an at a ruck arrival. He was literally tangled and was not a relatively a threat. So I I don't think Omani arriving at the ruck is a problem. It's the fact that he basically launched himself into a counter ruck when it was unnecessary when he could have still arrived at the ruck rapidly and done his job to, to win effectively the collision, just not the way he did. Completely. Um, They didn't even need to, I mean, the collision was one, the the Welsh players were falling backwards before he even got to the ruck. I think everyone knows how it is. You, trained to you know especially when you're up forward a big physical guy you're trained you see an opportunity to make a big hit you want to go make a big legal hit um but it just he was reckless i mean he, he tried to do that in an environment where he wasn't in enough control to target identify a person that was falling and know that you know he was going to be dangerously close to a head he just he, a, he got suspended for three matches um, which is the, the, the way the laws are written for disciplinary pissed me off. Um, I, I post about this on Twitter is like, it needs to be clarified that weeks should not be in the verbiage for suspensions. It should only be games or matches. Those are the only two words that should be used because he got matches, but there ended up being three matches on the next three weeks um, because there's a bye week and um so the next he's out, Peter Romani is out for the next three weeks. Um, entry point was six games um, based on, I, I loved rugby judicial systems um, based on his contrition and character <laughs> and other testimony. 
Um, you know, put on his Sunday best suit for his Zoom call because now they're on Zoom. And uh, Grandma Omani dial in, say, "My boy's the sweetest rugby boy you've ever seen." <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, it gets brought down from from six weeks to to three matches, which is, you know, I, I think three matches is appropriate. It, it penalizes the team um, and him effectively, and. You know, it says, "Hey, you just what? Like it was reckless, but wasn't necessarily intentional." Um, and and that's fine. the The other weird call for me this weekend was the yellow to Ellis Genge. Um, I, I I was like, he literally did try to rap, and you sent him off. Like it wasn't even like I think I was listening to Eight Chasers. Like it wasn't a penalty, and the. And this is where, like, they were, um, like, Joy Neville was sitting in the TMO. Like, Joy Neville's, like, the top women's referee in the world. I would say she's easily (sighs) – I think Wayne Barnes is the best referee in the world. Um, She would be in the top five, if not top three, um, ranked referees for me. Like, she's really good at her job. Um, But I don't know how, like, she and Andrew Brace didn't have a conversation – it wasn't even a conversation about whether that was a yellow or or a penalty. It was like confirm, um, and it was just it was it was not it was not a, if at most it's a penalty, but it wasn't like it was it was just play on, you know, um, just go. I, I I didn't like that. Now did that play into um, England losing? No, they were atrocious. Um, they it was so. Those two games were awful for me. Um, France versus Italy, at least both teams tried to ex- play expansive rugby. Italy obviously got their butt whoops because, you know, they, they put out a bunch of kids and they suck. Um, <laughs> and although I will say this French side isn't exactly old either, but they've played a lot more. But they don't suck. Top 14 <laughs> games. and Yeah, but they don't suck. Um but the two things I have with the England and Scotland game, I understand the conditions and I understand the tactics. Um, well, it was a, like it was like a, a storm, like it was raining. Um, so I, I understand cross kicking and all that stuff, but it, it just led to a really boring game. Um, yeah. And it wasn't – those conditions were not the same thing at Principality Stadium on Sunday. It was dry. It was literally dry, and they played the exact same piece of crap game of just cross-kicking and possession, and there was just – if you were watching, I was like – I think the viewing figures, which was crazy, eight and a half million people in the the UK watched England versus uh, Scotland. And that was the they that was what they got to watch. Like uh, it it just wasn't entertaining. Like I'm a rugby head, but just cross kicking annoys me. Um, to the point, just I don't like teams giving up possession. Yeah, like it's, it really, it's it's fun though to like at least see Scotland have a chance to beat England. I mean that. Oh, I, I think they would have. I like with the way they play. They were. I mean, they earned that. I mean, uh, and like, the USA has beaten Scotland. So therefore, oh, yeah. Scotland, therefore, uh, Six Nations champions. Yeah. USA, USA done. Now in first place in the Six Nations. Okay, so interesting question. Um, and this is something I kind of wanted to touch on. I think some other people have touched on. Um, and this is more of a, like I think. So 
Do you think layovers, layoffs um, for players when they haven't played a game, do you think it affect like as a group, is it an issue? And do you think that depending, or do you think it's a position thing rather than an individual thing? Um, because I think it's, it can be positional and it can also be individual, like certain positions. Um, for me, like Owen Farrell has to play games to, to be sharp as a fly half. Like he has to play games. So I don't think that him starting was necessarily a smart thing unless he was really beating George Ford in practice um, that much. Like he's not the, like the inform English qualified fly half by a large margin this year is, you know, is, is, um, is Marcus Smith. And then you also have what, um, is it, which one, which one is the fly half for Exeter? Cause they're brothers. I am one of them's a back row. So I don't uh, really know. Yeah. So Sam Simmons yeah. is like, also he's in pretty good form and can't get a cap. Like, and so Cipriani. why are you having, oh, well, Danny Cipriani is not playing right now. So he's, he's just, he's, but you, for me, I look at because Owen Farrell and whoever Robson and Young's like, if you're a scrum half or a 10, you have to play games because you have like what you do as an individual is very skill-based. Um, but then on the flip side, Maro Toji clearly proved that he doesn't this. And this is where I go into it being individual. It clearly showed that he could get himself physically ready in a time where he did not play a lot of rugby and be physical. Yeah, you know, it did take a lot of penalties to some degree, though, too, though. Yeah, Which I don't know I was, if that had anything to do with the layoff or just the way the game was being officiated, but yeah, I, I feel like it's, I mean, yeah, certainly individual, and then, but then at the same thing, like at the same time, like Billy just got like knocked yeah. off the park. So, I this is where I think it's individual and not necessarily positional. Well, Billy played that game against Ealing and didn't look very good at all. No, well, like, uh, yeah that little tournament that they're doing the, the, the championship too, the trail finders cup. Yeah. He, yeah. He, and he was the really only good. of the Saracen players that played in that game. And I guess it didn't, didn't appear to help him a whole lot. Yeah. So I, I, I think when it comes to like, we've seen that, you know, um, you know, chemistry wise that you can have a team of players that can rise to the occasion after having played very little rugby in um, the Tri-Nations this year, right? With that great victory that the Argentines had over the All Blacks. But, you know, they couldn't sustain that form, right? So, because they got... And you can flip the script and say they beat the All Blacks because the All Blacks hadn't played uh, before that. So, yeah, they were were suffering from that. It's just saying that, like, like you can... uh, but then it's just individual to individual, really. And um, coaching. I think, I think individuals certainly react differently to layoffs, but I also think the coaching atmosphere and the, the style and, and the quality of the coaching it also plays a part in how many active reps you need versus your, your, a system that you are able to put on and, and operate without as many reps. And so, I mean, I think 
that, that I, I don't know specifically what like, I mean, if, if I'm, if I'm, I mean, Eddie and like the coaching staff, they all had to quarantine during part of this camp. So that may have affected it. But I think if I'm Eddie Jones, I'm like, well, we're going to work on attack all week <laughs> yeah, because yeah. this attack was atrocious. Yeah. That's what, uh, it was, what it was like, right? I mean, Owen Farrell obviously didn't have a great game, but it wasn't as if, these plays were on and when Farrell was just missing them, it seemed like there was never anything on for England the whole game. I mean, they just didn't seem like they had a close oh, attack. It was a team loss for sure. Like they Certainly just in the back in the backs, you know, the England back line, I think just except, seems, except Ollie Thorley. He just uh, <laughs> doesn't get blamed for that. But uh, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, really good to see the six nations back when the six nations is on you know what's usually around the corner the next week? What normally is is MLR opening weekend? Um, if you opening guys go training camp weekend, no. Well, no, like in a normal time. In a normal, in a normal yeah. time. In a normal. We still time. got we got training camp opening today. Well, well, yeah, training camp opened yesterday. What is even um, a normal time for MLR schedule? Has, has it ever had the same schedule two years in a row? Two years in a row. We started on the same weekend, uh, t- 2019 and, and 2020. Um, but uh, I feel like the, the first year with uh, uh, the yeah, first year we started in April. I yeah, think. so we started. Yeah. Then we started. So it was after the ARC. It was after the ARC year two because all the the Eastern teams had to play all their games away. In year yeah, three, we didn't start quite as early. Right, we were a little later. It wasn't like eight road games for Toronto. Um, I don't. I don't think we. Started. It was like it was five. Or, it was going to be Toronto five. Had, yeah, Toronto had six one home, home game, but it was in it was Las six Vegas. away games. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, you had a you had a we home had, game. Had one home game, but it was in Las Vegas. Yeah. So yeah. All right, we'll send the producer to fact um, check. But they uh, started <laughs> the same weekend. I say no. I say they started later. Year three. Uh, I mean, I feel like two, two and three were like if it's not the same weekend, it's gonna be around yeah, they might the same. Close. It might have been like two weeks later, uh, three weeks later, but I both started after the Super Bowl. I can tell you that right now. They yeah, did not I start. Feel like, I feel like year two started mid February and year three started beginning of March. Um, let's see. No, because we were in uh week five when the world shut down. Yeah, this so that would be started, that's gonna be February, yeah. Um, or we just finished week five when the world shut down. Let's look at this. Um, where's the 2020 season? Did one of the oh, March 12th is when we suspended the so that's after week five. Um, so where is uh, we began on February 8th, 9th. So actually, was that the Did same we- week as the Super Bowl? The Super Bowl is probably a week before. Yeah, it had to be the week before. So we started on February. So February 8th, literally the first week was last year or was Monday. Would have been, um, was 2020. Um, And to look at 2019 just for, because we do that. um, Oh, we started in January um, 26th. So the week before the Super Bowl. Um, was vindication. <laughs> yeah. Craig was right. It just went the other direction than what. He was. <laughs> no, I, mean, I was right in the direction too. It was just the whole thing was earlier. Twenty nineteen uh, was January. Twenty twenty was February. Uh, in any case, let's just move on with Craig was right. Next subject. 
Craig was right. He says, hear me now. Believe me later. You know? Um, so I guess the next thing is really like COVID stuff. Um, because I know you guys talked about this on LaRouge Rugby on the last episode. And sometimes I was like, I remember I was listening to one episode and it was like months ago. And it was just like, we didn't really know what was going on. And like Dan was just really adamant about some things. And fact, is this the moment where you just brought me on to fact check everything that we say on our show, just to be like, <laughs> this is all, everything that you guys are wrong about. Uh, no, no, no. I think I did. I, I think like save that for Twitter. if you added me to your, <laughs> if you added me to your WhatsApp chat after I listened, I could definitely just <laughs> drag Stu and Dan. Oh, no. <laughs> but um, no, the, the, so this is what I've sort of figured out. Like, and, and you can, I know that like a few of the coaches have talked about protocols on MLR kickoff, which again, I am sort of, well, I am a part of, I produce that show um, uh, for Dan power and Pete Steinberg. Um, so I'm fairly certain that the COVID protocols, this is without knowing, um, I don't have the thing. I don't have the sheet in front of me because it's actually it's not a sheet. It's it's multiple pages. It's not the length of the NBA health and safety protocols, which is 150 pages. But it's you know like um, I think it probably 20 to 30 because you could compress everything in the NBA protocols down to like 20 to 30 because it's just they have stuff in there that's like I, I don't know. Like it's just a lot of stuff because lawyers write, lawyers are the person people that write these things. Um, Paid by the hour, you know. And uh, so there is a minimum level of testing um, for teams that is reflexive. So if I'm guessing, if there is a, you know, if there is a, a quote unquote outbreak or an exposure teams can ratchet up their number of tests that they do. Um, so every team tests multiple. So you can look at multiple as two, or you can look at multiple as even seven, but every team has to test a minimum um, level of times. And it's more than one um, per week. Um, all of their players, um, every team I know has a decently sized budget um, that is projected but again, it's maneuverable where if there is an outbreak and if play, teams are exposed in match play, then you know you have to quarantine players and you have to test more often until that is effectively under control. Um, if players are vaccinated, do they still need to be tested? Uh, I'm pretty sure vaccines does not stop you from getting this virus. Um, yes, it does. That's what vaccines do. well they stop you from getting um definitely stop you from getting smallpox and anthrax um i can tell you that well at least the scar on my arm makes me think that it would stop me from getting smallpox yeah Um, it's gonna stop you from getting covid too i don't understand what you guys are laughing at that's what vaccines do (laughs) i'm laughing at the delivery of the way you said it more than (laughs) um it's an interesting concept but i know that the NBA is not fully vaccinated at this juncture. Well, yeah, it's early still. So um, the season goes to June, right? So so, um, people are talking about, does it need to be a hard bubble? Does it need to be a soft? Well, I can tell you this, that um, 
players are training in pods, depending on the state. That is uh, either a maximum of eight or a maximum of 12. Um, so that, that makes things very interesting. But at the same time, if you look at position groupings, if especially if you're at, at 12, you're, you're probably fine. Um, you just – you know, you have your forwards coach, coach your forwards. And then, you know, when the one time you're ready to coach for attack, you, you do that, um, do your walkthroughs and it, it may, it does make it more difficult, but after you start playing games for a while, it did take the NFL a couple of weeks to, to really get everything under control as far as quality aspect is concerned. So basically the first, first four weeks, you know, it's kind of, I mean, although some teams have at least, I think every team has at least one preseason game scheduled. Um, but the first four weeks are basically a preseason, except for the fact that it counts. Um, and I was talking to, like, Ross Neal was on MLR Kickoff. Another shout out. I'm going to just reference these because it talks about, we, there was a bunch of talk about COVID last week on that show. Um, that he talked about the, the premiership protocols. Cause he played for London Irish in the fall. And it was like how strict it was at the facility, but how strict it wasn't away from the pitch. You were able to go to a bar if it was actually open. Like you were allowed to live effectively live your life within the constructs of the health codes at that, at that time. So like, Whereas I think with MLR is you have more interaction with, with your, with your teammates um, at your facility and at practice, but away from the pitch um, is where the, the rules really tighten up. And um, it is, I would say it's effectively a semi permeable bubble. So um, you, if you're married, you're still going to be able to see your, um, see your your wife and kids and stuff like you're still gonna be able to see your family um but the amount of interaction you can have is much is going to be stricter than any local health codes um that we have going on um and i think that's important um for some teams like san diego and toronto i think they're basically going into a hard bubble um because they are relocating um across state lines and borders to where the interesting thing is going to be getting those um, it is getting, you know, the associate players that you have training offsite uh, in country or into your facility. If you have injuries, you know, because like you can kind of do it uh, as is right um, during a regular season, because you know, they train when they can train and they're a part of your walkthrough and, and they play. But with this, it's a little bit more difficult for the associate players that are around the league. Um, so, but it, they're, the, the health and safety protocols are pretty, pretty restrictive on players away from team facilities. Yeah. I think my biggest question though, is like in like kind of just, what looking at all, I guess the other sports across North America and stuff like teams and leagues have had to reschedule games like quite regularly. 
Um, so I, I think that's kind of my biggest question is like, what's the league's plan in the event that you can't play a game because it, there's some COVID cases on a team or something like, where do you, like, where does that shift to? And well, like, it's a good thing we have two bye weeks. They just redid the yeah. whole season schedule in like two weeks. I mean, so <laughs> this is where, so you had exposures on multiple teams in the NFL. Right? Yeah. They did not cancel a single game. No. I, so, so it is. Granted, those guys are getting paid a lot more money, and they have all of them are full time, you know. But they were able to play every single game, so I think if our because at the end of the day, it comes down to player responsibility, um, in you know just going back and forth to team facility and to the house, and that's. I'll be honest, that's an easy thing to do because most professional athletes, especially the young ones, the, the rookies, you know, you talk to, you listen to these guys talk when they're in interviews, they're spending 60, 70, 80 hours a week when in, rookies in the NFL at, at team facilities before COVID. So unless it's a bye week, they're already living a pretty isolated lifestyle. Um, except for the NBA guys, the NBA guys live a lived rather because in the current time frame with their protocols, they cannot live um, a party lifestyle at all. Like it is impossible for them to do what they were doing. I think the NHL guys were partiers too, especially when they went when teams would go to Vegas. Like uh, oh, Jonas Cespedes and the Mets got COVID <laughs> in the bar from when I left. I mean. <laughs> Vegas's home record in their in year one speaks for itself, I think, at that point. So, uh, um, but I mean, I think I think it's just kind of like one of those things where it's you know even like watching like you know some of the rugby that's happened overseas or like the barbarians thing. It's just I think at this point it's just like you kind of said, Aaron. It's just as long as you just kind of follow the rules and just kind of take some responsibility on yourself, and then hopefully we can be like the NFL and not have to worry about. Maybe a game has to get rescheduled. Or I, I think I think games are going to get rescheduled. Yeah, for the sure. Schedule, I think the current schedule that we have is not the schedule we will finish with. But I think there's a very real possibility that we can play every game. Which is realistically all you can be hoping for at this point in where we are. In the- but um, like as far as cancellations, it's just going to be interesting. I, I don't know. Like everything... Like when it comes, like even with an, if a hard bubble, which the NBA had, you had, uh, and the NWSL, the NWSL had a hard bubble, and they had to drop a whole team because the whole team decided to 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 leave yeah. the bubble, you know. So, and you had multiple players from the NBA that got fined; they didn't get suspended. Um, that broke the bubble. Um, they came back into quarantine. You know, famous. Go, go get those wings at Magic City, <laughs> you know. And supposedly those wings are amazing, but I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think they there's some adult entertainment going on um, at Magic City, <laughs> but they got like I, you know, um, the, if you look at like the barbarians thing, intentionally going out uh, yeah. when I I can I guess I can understand getting out of the hotel, but. They had someone from RFU security 
with them, just like the NFL has NFL security. Like people are complaining about RFU security. I'm guessing it's like NFL security where there's an NFL security officer for every NFL team where like they could have talked to their RFU security person and be like, you know, we understand we have this hard bubble with this hotel, but could you secure us this bar so that we can go to this bar um, so that we can just get out of this environment? And that could have been done. Like the, mm-hmm. that, that could have been done, but they were out in public and not once, but twice. Um, but uh, for, at the same time, I'm like, you guys had a whole hotel to yourselves and the restaurant at the hotel that you could have been on the beers with the entire time. And so this is where like, there was a comment. I think Dan Murphy made a comment on, on your show was, you know, oh, a player needs to be cut. If the, it was like, ah, I mean, uh, the precedent for intentional COVID ex- COVID exposure, um, which no one was actually exposed, which no one actually got, I guess, COVID from with, the way rugby discipline disciplinary systems work is the Rob Shaw case. And it was five games. Yeah. So, and I, I think we got to be very careful with a judging men's livelihoods, considering how much people are actually getting paid playing rugby. And, you know, there's also the Josh Adams case where he was suspended for two games by Wales and dropped from the squad. And, a lot of people are making fun of him, but at the same time, it was a it was a family event. There weren't that many people there, and it wasn't like he was going off and getting drunk. Like all the players were were released from the Welsh team to go back and hang with their families before they had to go back in the bubble. So, I do have some sympathy for Josh Adams here. Um, do I think it was like I I don't put the don't put the two events in the same category. Um I, I think in fact I think it was probably a little harsh, but I can understand why he gets dropped from the squad. Um, because effectively, you know, could that have been an exposure? You don't know. Like, unless he comes back and tests and tests positive. So I, I can understand just because of quarantine, because the Six Nations is supposed to be in a hard bubble. Um, I, I can understand why he was why he was dropped. Um, but uh, you know, like I said, like players are going to get tested multiple times a week. They just have to be smart, and it's not just players, but like staff has to be smart um, about this. What about it's, podcasters. Um, well, we're already socially distanced, so and already smart, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, so I, I, I think our teams are very smart and very constrained, and everyone knows the pressure that we have. A, it's just people got to be smart, and at the end of the day, the virus is viral, so. You know, even if you take every precaution, you can still catch it. So, um, but moving on, um, this was a good one. Um, So I guess we'll barely touch on this. Uh, The Jackals, uh, they withdraw for um, their first season. Um, 
My only concern here is they've been a member since the very beginning. Um, and they had hired a lot of people. They had signed a full roster. And it looks like, like they were ready, at least externally. I know that there were some internal problems, obviously, <laughs> um, by the fact that they will not be playing this season. Um, but I, I, like it, I think it's difficult um, for a team to withdraw. I think it helps for the season. It makes it gives the league more flexibility, um, and teams were uh, given the opportunity to draft some of the players. I thought that I thought the dispersal draft was a very fair system, although it was kind of complicated. But basically, all associate players um, were given a severance and they were terminated. Uh, but and they were free agents and free to negotiate with whatever team. Um, and uh, a few have Bronson Tella is being one. I know that a few have made their way to um, some other teams. So um, that left ended up leaving 12 guys uh, who opted into the draft. And um, I think what was the eight have signed contracts already um, with the teams that they were drafted by or, or traded to or like two, two play. So just, I mean, it was mentioned on another podcast, uh, but uh, Ryan Rees, his rights were drafted by New Orleans. Um, he was part of the collegiate supplemental draft. He got a waiver. There were six guys that got wa- collegiate waivers for this draft that was running concert with the dispersal draft. And his rights were traded to New Orleans from New Orleans to rugby ATL. Um, so, you know, um, which is kind of cool. I, I mean, teams are really taking this serious. Like, yeah, like, I, mean, I, I think, you know, what, look, I think we all understand that this can happen to an ownership group like the Jackals. I mean, this is a startup league and these type of hiccups occur. So let's get that off the bat. I, I mean, I understand that said, you know, I don't think it's good luck. Um, I, I think, if the the ultimate commercial viability of MLR to go from its current stage where they're all burning cash, trying to grow the business, grow the brand, to a, a place where they're actually financially viable and stable um, is a question of popularity. They need to become more popular in the U.S. with the local communities. And things like the team, a team in the league leaving a month before the season starts is not going to help get American fans to invest their time in paying attention to the league. Cause they're like, this is a circus. I mean, who, you know, this is not a, I, I, why am I going to invest when a team I'm, I might just spend all this time worrying about getting excited about may not show up this season. Uh, so, I mean, it's obviously it's a one-off. It's a crazy time with COVID, I'm sure they're doing their best and I, I get it. Um, but I think it's unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's just, it's not the type of thing that's going to help the MLR brand get to uh, an economically safe place. Yeah. And the, uh, the jackals too, like they put the season ticket deposits went on sale, like what, four or five days before they, oh, they were, they were still conducting business for yeah. Sunday. Like, yeah, there's they they signed two more development players, like the week, the week before, ten yeah. days before, something like that. Yeah. Um, so Alvin yeah, Jeffrey, um, it was good. Good to see him land. He has a cool story coming out of Memphis Inner City Rugby. Um, but yeah, that. I mean, people are like, 
I'm getting text messages like, what the hell? It's like, I don't know anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is anyone going to buy a Dallas ticket again? I mean, you know, like why? How many games are they going to have to play to make up their reputation before people trust that they're even going to be a team? Or even even players. Like, do you are debating between Dallas or another team? Like, how how much does that weigh on you? So, like, in the first couple years of the league – um, cause now we're into a few, um, not no longer a couple, uh, New York had was once they got their license, were able to sign players for the next year and they loaned players out to other teams. Uh, the same thing happened, uh, in year two, um, New England was able to sign some players and they loaned players out to other teams. Um, and I, I don't like as far as I know right now, like Dallas has no player rights at all. Like none of the team, none of these players that have been released and may have signed deals with other teams, they don't have the rights to any of these players to come back. Like they're not loaned out. Like they are, um, they are signed to the teams that have signed them. And I, I feel for the Glendale guys. Because, you know, like two dispersal drafts in less than a calendar year. It's kind of brutal. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a difficult one. Um, and it's the first – I would say it's the first real major hiccup this league has had. Um, maybe Glenn, maybe we can throw Glendale in there, but we're going to get to that um, sideshow in a – probably the next segment. Um, but yeah, it's so the league itself um, put out an Academy grassroots initiative in the fall, which is pretty intensive, gives teams a lot of incentives to add cat, like to get cap space, to get salary cap credits. Um, I know that some teams were concerned um, based on, certain things like whether they'd be able to get those salary cap credits. And well, I, I think everyone knows by now that some of those things are very, some of those credits are actually very easy to achieve. And a few of those credits actually require work. Um, and we're seeing teams actually invest in their academies and actually do work locally with children um, the, the hard one for some teams has been the development side piece and the sort of like U23 piece. For, I think that's actually been a struggle for almost the U23 pieces have been a struggle for everyone, where some teams have been able to do the development side piece like Utah and um, uh, Atlanta and NOLA this year. Um, so I think only like three teams would have like the ability to get all of the, the salary cap relief. Um, but every team would have the ability to get at least some salary cap credits because there are some incentives that are easy to achieve. Um, but, and we can look at the systems. I think the arrows have a very good system. Um, they've partnered with the Ontario blues, um, which obviously that, I mean, I think that partnership had basically been there since sort of the beginning, just not yeah. 
official because Mark Winokur was obviously um, the GM for the um, Ontario Senior Blues for a very long time. So, like those relationships in Ontario and Toronto already existed. It was just a question of formalizing everything. And then you have this expansive plan uh, with New England where they have 12 different regional training groups um, that they will at some point order kit for, and they would love to have all of these teams when they get to the U18 level play in a tournament. Um, that, that would be cool. Um, but it gives them a, it, it was, it's fairly expansive. And if you hear what they're talking about, they're talking about 10 years from now, you know, being able to produce players, not being able to produce players two years from now, but 10 years from now, that system produces players. And if they get other athletes upskilled along the way, that can then become free jacks or get into MLR, that's that's just gravy. But it sort of brings me to a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. was playing Trinidad and Tobago in a friendly in soccer. And we beat the brakes off Trinidad and Tobago, 7-0 with – what was effectively an A side. Like it was a full, they, they do friendlies and they do test matches in soccer. It's very weird, but it was a full international friendly. So the players got caps. Um, like they, they have a cap number, um, but it was kids. And a few of those kids from the friendlies that we just had got, were requested on loan deals. I think DK was one of them um, to uh, an, an English Premier League team. Like, like these guys that are 21, 22, like just that are going to be on the U23 Olympic team just got pulled into playing in Europe on loan deals from their MLS teams because the MLS isn't operating right now because of the offseason. And I was just thinking about that because we lost the senior team under a different coaching staff, lost to Trinidad and Tobago in qualifiers and kept our bums back home when the world cup was in Russia a couple of years ago. And wow, it's been a couple of years. Wow. That's crazy. You know, it's been, it's actually been two years ago and we're seeing sort of this golden generation, but then you think about, so it's 2021. MLS started in 95, was founded in 94. That's a 25 year effort to get to the point where we have what is effectively our youngsters because all of our other players are in Europe and are not, are not released for this friendly are able to go off two years later and beat the brakes off a team that had just knocked us out of going to the World Cup. So that's sort of where I'm at when it comes to, like, that's what the academies are going to be like and the investment in the community is going to be like. That's that's sort of your arc. Now, the difference between where the U.S. is in world ranking and also the salary difference between MLR versus a premiership team is not nearly the same as an MLS team to an EPL team. So I think the growth curve is going to be much less than 25 years, but 
10 to 15, will we be producing players um, through our systems to get us to a competent level where we can compete, you know, and this isn't just for the U S but it's for Canada too. Cause like there are now 35 players South of the border. Yep. Yep. Yes. And then uh 54 total playing in the MLR this year. Nice. Nice so, so that's so that's a tracker <laughs> of all the Canadians. So, just so we so we. Have that. I, try, I try to do it, Craig. It's uh, it's part of part of the brand. That's why I wear the hat and stuff, you know. So we have that, and I think that's very important. And that's I think people need to look at this holistically and long term. Now we get to this Colorado XOs thing. This is your chance, Derek. Oh yeah, the whole reason that you wanted me to come on here, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's just it's so bizarre to me that I guess I guess part of my issue with it, the way that they I guess the rugby town and Glendale, the way that they're talking about it. Well, my like, issue is that it's Glendale. Well, like, okay, well that's a start. Yeah. So start, like <laughs> but uh like even like them talking about put producing Eagles for like the next World Cup and stuff or putting a team in the pro. Oh, and Whatever. winning the 2027 World Cup. Winning, yeah, winning the 2027 World Cup. And, but, like, I guess I just don't really. And I know we kind of touched on how maybe how cool it would be to have Gronk at a uh, at a camp or something. But like, I don't. I just really don't think that like crossover athletes are the answer to, you know, Canada or the United States finding success on like the world rugby stage. And I mean, and that doesn't mean like you shouldn't have crossover athletes because obviously, you know, it, you can find them and you can find guys that can help your team from other sports. But the idea of having like an entire team of guys that have never played rugby before, um, just I don't I just don't th- see how it's going to work. I think like you kind of mentioned, um, you said the Free Jacks were saying that it's they're hoping to get like talented players or players on the free jacks or maybe even eagles but you're saying like their timeline was what 10 years you said aaron 10 years before the first player would suit up for the senior free jack team yeah exactly right so it's like i think in order to if canada and the united states want to get better on the world stage i think you need to do that like attack like the grassroots level like you need to get kids playing rugby when they're like 10 right and like figure out how to get kids get kids interested in the sport at the early age because it's like you can like i was looking at the glendale crossover academy like the roster and there's some guys that are on that academy that are over 30 already so i mean if you're you're already 30 is the new 20 that was bizarre uh i mean yeah but like no, yeah, like, but I'm just saying, like, I mean, hey, I'm close to thirty. I'm not, I'm not half far behind <laughs> you guys too. Here, so. Um, but like, like, if you're trying, if they're, they're saying they're going to try to get guys that are, you know, to play for the Eagles and stuff, but it's like you have guys starting like are already over thirty. It's like, what do you get out of them? Like, maybe one World Cup, and that's if they figure out how to become an Eagle within two years. But like realistically, like your timeline is probably closer to what Aaron said. It's like it's incredibly hard to learn a brand new sport, no matter how athletic you are. And to me, like part of that is also just like the mental aspect of the game, like your ability to just like read a play, like the rugby IQ and the IQ of any other sport that you might be trying to learn. 
to like figure out like where like hey you know what the center just moved over here which means i have to move over here because in two phases he's going to get the ball and try to do this um it's something that is incredibly difficult to learn versus just you know how to you know spin a ball out of your hand um and i just think if you kind of look at a lot of the the team the countries that are good at rug that are good at rugby it's like they're not looking for guys that just started to learn rugby when they're like 24 25 years old because most of them like Ireland is fair um I, I, I will explain why but continue yeah but i think like even like i mean in canada here like if you like a sport that we're good at hockey. Like if you're not playing junior hockey, by the time you're 17, you have like no shot at the NHL, right? Like you, there's a clear, like there's a path that you kind of have to go on. Um, and like, I just, I think if you, you can take a couple crossover guys, but to have a whole team just seems crazy to me. Um, I think if you wanted to develop local or North American talent, I think the way to go is to try to, put money, put effort, time, energy, resources into investing in more like the youth game. And hopefully, you know, if you, you get into the mind of like a, like an 11, a 12 year old, and it's like, yeah, 10 years later, they're 22 and you can maybe get two or three world cups out of them. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I pretty much agree with that all. Um, but to take a moment, I guess, in defense of the Glendale Academy here for a second, like I don't have a high level of confidence that this is going to produce a meaningful change in the trajectory of USA rugby, but you know, I encourage innovation. I mean, nothing we've tried so far has produced a meaningful change in USA rugby. Maybe it is just a generational thing and it's going to take 20 years and that's great. But if some private organization using their own money wants to try to innovate and create another approach, um, you know, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that they're trying other things. I don't think it's going to work, but what do I know? Maybe it'll work. And if it does, great. And if not, what what harm did it do us? Right? I mean, didn't, didn't, uh, yeah, they withdrew from MLR, but again, they're they're a private organization that could pursue its interests. Or a municipal organization. What's that? Or a municipal organization. Well, they're uh, as far as I know, they're at least officially private. Uh, you know, the stadium <laughs> might be a municipal uh, asset. Um, but so, I mean, look, if they want to innovate, if they want to try to make the Perry Baker 15s, which again, I don't, I don't think it's the same. I, I don't think it's likely that that will happen because 15s is more methodical and more team process oriented in my mind than sevens. Um, but again, like if they want to take a shot at that, I wish them luck. I, I'm, I want to encourage innovative approaches. And so, I mean, to me, I'm going to sit back and, and wish them well and hope they produce some kind of successful result. So I'm very supportive of the concept of a cross of a national crossover Academy that is funded effectively where you can pay athletes, both men and women, a stipend, which Glendale is somehow affording to pay these players $1,500 a month, give them free lodging and food, three squares a day, um, which is basically, and the budget they have for this is $3 million a year, which is basically, which is what they were spending on MLR, <laughs> what they were spending on MLR. Okay. Let's, so then let's get into quotes about 
our six-year plan is to have a team full of American crossover athletes in the pro whatever. I'm not, I'm, I've, it is officially the pro whatever. So please, on the Rouge Rugby, refer to it as the pro whatever because the Celtic League cannot figure out what it wants to be. So it is the pro. Do we have to make sure to to like trademark by like you're full of dirt? Like after put it in the credit <laughs> that we said. <laughs> He's a pro bro joint. That's a, from from Aaron Castro. Um, yeah, Aaron Castro providing the nomenclature that has been used on this episode. <laughs> the pro, the pro, whatever. And so you're going to spend the same amount of money, and you're going to go into players that have no background. Um, and you're going to try and train them up. How will you, if they become, if any of them become decent rugby players, right, in this process, how will you retain them um, contractually so that they don't join an MLR team? Because they need competition and to develop. And they're not going to get competition, at least in the current environment, they're not going to get competition to develop. So who are they going to play? They're going to play low-level club sides because that's what Division One rugby in the U.S. is now. Um, it is not like Division One rugby has has been on this downward migration that would have happened without MLR. You know, like it, the qualitative level and just senior recruiting for rugby in this country is a mess. Um, it is a mess. I think Craig Gradelli has one of the better clubs with senior recruiting in the country. New York rugby club. Um, but generally senior recruiting is, is a mess across the, the profile from coast to coast. Um, Cause on back years ago, back in the mid two thousands, when Zach Pangelinum was a child, actually we were all child. I think Zach and I are the same age, but on back could field four teams. They would have a hundred guys at practice. Like it's not like that anymore at division one clubs. Like there might be one club in the country that can have a hundred guys at one practice, but there won't be a hundred guys at the next practice. There might be 60 or less. Um, but the idea of a national crossover Academy that the NGB um, leverage resources and coaching like from national team coaching so that, and provided a proper environment for guys to develop and then get those players onto MLR teams I would be totally about, but because I've sort of watched Glendale because they did sort of a crossover Academy in the summers between major league rugby, where they invited guys out and they competed in the Rocky mountain summer league. They've taken first choice elite college athletes that just missed out on the NFL. They had a guy who was a four star. I think it was, yeah, he was a four star recruit out of high school who was a, a starting offensive tackle for LSU and they played him at prop in one Glendale Merlins game. Like that was it. And he never played for their Glendale Merlins team again. And he never suited up for, um, for the Raptors, but this at six foot five and that big, he's a lock. It's not going to be a, right. he's not gonna be a tight head. Um, you're wasting this huge body that has been developed over time in a division one strength and conditioning program that you could use in your engine room. And so I've watched them sort of like waste guys before. Um, and it, it concerns me. I don't know what they sold these guys on, but um, one of the guys in the coaching staff, Luke Gross, was a crossover. 
He played, um, I forget which um, Division One college uh, he played for, but, um, you know, let's just make it fast. Luke Gross. Uh, Marshall University, he played basketball there, um, and he played Locke internationally, uh, and, you know, played for Harlequins, Rovigo, uh, Scarlets, Newcastle, Doncaster, and amassed 62 caps. So, like, that is an American and, and Canadian rugby is littered with crossovers that were highly successful athletes. So, but this gives us, but it's run by Glendale, which I have a, which I, you know, they, they just quit MLR and all sorts of stuff and whatever. And that's, that's where my concerns are. Um, but look at what Rugby Canada is doing. They've been able to leverage sponsorships and get money and fund the Pacific Pride program. That's what USA Rugby needs because a lot of the players that are coming into the Pacific Pride program are key targeted um, crossover athletes on top of um, athletes in the development pipeline for Rugby Canada that need not strict supervision, but a lot of coaching in a full-time environment. Um. And they're getting it. Like uh, we were sort of mentioning Mark Antoine Alette, um was won the Vanier, Vanier Cup uh, with his uh, collegiate rugby football team or collegiate football team, not collegiate rugby football team, um, and was recruited and joined the Pacific Pride and did enough. And he got signed by the Arrows. Um, in the first year of the Pacific Pride, they recruited Edil Nicky, who – was the Heck Crichton Award winner. So for whatever reason, this guy went undrafted in the CFL draft and the the guy is what is the Canadian Heisman winner uh decided to to give it to give a shot at at rugby with with rugby Canada. Um he's not on an MLR team, kind of sucks, whatever, but you're if you're able to full fund this effectively, guys will take a shot. And the biggest issue, I think, in American rugby generally, especially when guys graduate from high school who have been in high school rugby programs, is 95% of – it's probably higher than that. Probably like 97 98% of collegiate rugby programs are clubs, and the environment is a qualitative – a quality level that is lower than the quality level they had in high school. And that is why we lose guys to D3 football that were high school Americans because guys want to go into a performance environment where they're coached and rather than showing up to a club team that, you know, doesn't have a field. So that, 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 so we lose athletes all the time that never come back to the sport. If we could figure out to connect the dots between collegiate rugby to MLR so that you could retain athletes, you'd be a lot further along. I think you guys between in, in Ontario have a really good men's collegiate system. The, the, the collegiate system in Quebec is actually starting to get very organized, but at the end of the day, we both like both of our countries have like, we're missing a link in the development chain that fits within the culture of the countries. 
Um, because if you talk to the, the people that are designing the MLR academies, college is a part of the equation, which is not necessarily a part of the equation in Europe. So I, I, for, I believe in a crossover academy. It is part of blocking and tackling, as Dan Lyle says all the time, of, an NG, of a national governing body. Because for, for us, USA Rugby is a small governing body. And what small governing bodies do is attract high-level athletes from outside the sport and see if they can help raise the athletic profile of the national team. They're not the end-all, be-all. They're not. But if you can help raise the athletic profile of the national team, then the national team is going to get better. Um, But at the end of the day, can't quantify work ethic. That's what, like, the, we talked about Tom Brady at the beginning of the show. Can't quantify work ethic. So, a guy could have been in the NFL for two to three years and raise his hand and, and want to, like, actually join Major League Rugby or join the Eagles or whatever. But he can show up and find out how hard it is and say, nah, I'm good. And or he can come in and be like, wow, I love this sport. I'm just going to dig in and learn and I'm going to get better. Here, here's my question to you. How many Perry Bakers <laughs> types do does a crossover academy need to find that can you know, transfer over to the Eagles in the near term to make the Eagles competitive in 15s where they are in sevens? I mean, you know, it's like sevens, you know, two or three guys. You're competitive, man. It's a big portion of the team. And if you have, you know, two of the best players in the world out of your seven people, you're going to be competitive. I mean, how? what is that ratio for 15? To be as part of a squad of 30? Well, I mean, you don't need the 30 best players in the world to be competitive. I mean, how many, like, diamonds in the rough do the Eagles need today to go from 15 in the world to eight? Well, getting from eight, I would say the number like out of a squad of 30, like, which is roughly what you have for your, for your first team training group. And then you have another 30, which are the guys on the outside looking in probably eight. But could you get those eight by having academies, identifying athletes at a younger age too, though? Well, you can't. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm saying a crossover five. academy is an answer. It is not the answer. So it is part of the equation. I'm saying you would need to find elite level athletes that have elite level work ethic to raise the athletic profile of a 15s team to get there. Um, And where these guys fit, they don't fit at scrum half and they don't fit at fly half. I will readily admit that that's a position that you need to be playing at least since you're 14. Yeah. But I, I'm talking like with the current Eagles team. Like it, with like the current Eagles will team? Be the, will be the 10. So uh, how many pieces do they if, – if Glendale wants to live up to their promise of a 2027 World Cup winner, I mean, it's not like the Glendale team. By 2027, this team looks way different, right? So <sighs> – well, I'm saying how many how many players do they have to produce? Let's give them a a, a metric to measure them against. I mean, how many eagle? I've got five guys that make 2023. 
Five. Okay, I think that's. Fair. I don't think that. Which I don't think they could make. They could produce five guys by twenty twenty three. I don't. I just, if you, if you were to like, a good way to judge is my point. Yeah, like if you were to create like an over under on how many guys from the Glendale crossover academy will be an eagle by like the 20, yeah. 2023 or twenty twenty seven World Cup. Yeah, my, my over under would be two, but my I think one to, and a half to be a success. I think it would need to be closer to five. Yeah, five. And so I, I guess my point is I don't think they're going to be a success. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, but to be fair to them, let's, I, I want to give them a target where, where now they can come and say, F you, Gridelli, you were wrong. You said we need to produce five, you produce five. I don't. So the reason why I say eight that would get us, you know, into the top eight in the world is I don't think the athletic profile of the current Eagles roster is that far off. But I will also point out that if you look at the athletic profile of this roster, we had guys playing Division three football cross over into playing rugby. Well, no, a yeah, you had guys playing Division three football that cross over into playing rugby, and they're on the Eagles or were on the Eagles, and that was Ben Landry. So, the I think the the overall profile of what we're looking at to get to elite in the current collegiate landscape is kind of shallow, generally, because we if you look at if you look at the NFL draft eligible seniors. We have, if we just went to NCAA and you didn't look at the NAIA or any of the other like smaller national associations, you're graduating over almost 2,000 players a year. That's just seniors, right? So you have probably, what you would have like, and you look at juniors, right? Because the guys who are 21 um, or have played a third year of, collegiate football you're you're looking at something like 2500 athletes a year to fill um you know i can't do math right now (laughs) seven times 32 i can never do math so i wouldn't feel too bad about this canadians 224 slots right so let's say they're looking at there, there are 2,200 um, draft eligible players that GMs have to sort through. 10% of that is what we're looking at that creates the NFL teams every year. Um, so NFL teams are only look, they get seven, you get seven picks usually in a given year. Um, if you don't tr- trade away your stuff. So, and a team is 53 players plus a practice squad of about 12. Um, so you, a lot of guys, practice squad guys, usually free agents, whatever, but teams cut down to 53 for an active roster, have about 12 other guys that practice. And so like, how many good players do we need playing in college rugby or cause we have, like I said, we have a connection issue is there are a lot of players that play division one football that played rugby that could raise the athletic profile of the Eagles and could raise the athletic profile of major league rugby. 
that played when they were 16, 14, 18. Like there's three kids at North Northern Arizona university that played, you know, football here uh, in Phoenix and were, one of them was a high school American, you know, and if you could get him, if you get all three brothers into MLR after they graduate from college, you're like, these are kids that played rugby all their life. You know, if you can just capture those guys, you're, you're fixing the, the feedback loop. So I, I just, with all the stuff that Glendale says they're going to do, I just struggle with it. I, I just, and if it was a national academy that had f- good funding and Gary Gold and well, now all of his position coaches are, are head coaches <laughs> in major league rugby. Oh, it's not exactly as if USA rugby was some uh, pinnacle of financial management. That we yeah, it's not. <laughs> but if, if you had the national staff, right. If, if you had, um, let's say Greg McWilliams wasn't coaching Rooney and Sean Pittman wasn't coaching um, Utah and you had the national staff available to run a centralized academy with um, the head of performance, which is Hugh Bevan um, for USA Rugby, the strength coach. Um, and you did a six month in residency program to identify talent and develop talent in the off season of major league rugby and MLR teams saw those guys. And you know, guess what? A perfect team for the, for this group of players to play would be the pride. It would be. Yeah. I, yeah. If, if you had that, that would probably. Because, sweet. and then you, because then you put those two teams on film against each other and you give um, MLR teams the chance to sign both. Yeah, well, I mean, like you're even in a way, like you're already kind of seeing that happening. Like Houston signed four Pride guys this year already. You got, as you mentioned, Mark Antoine Ouellette, who is a crossover athlete that went to the Pride, um, already signed with the Arrows. And I got, I mean, you got a couple guys too that had like a cup of coffee and technically played a game with the Pride that are in the league, like Robbie Povey and Giuseppe Tois and stuff as well. Well, Kelly. Yeah, Will Kelly too. Well, yeah. this is where like it, this is where I talked about. It. It's not just crossovers. It's guys who Rugby Canada has in the system that they want yeah. to have think- an intensive coaching regimen, and then that's then you have that group of guys, and then you have the group of crossovers that gets sprinkled in and developed around that group. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think that's like a key difference, though. It's like I think like I have nothing against the idea of like a crossover athlete or anybody that's like, hey, I want to give rugby a shot. Um, but it's just, I think, I don't think a team of those players, like a full match day 23 of, you know, all crossover athletes will necessarily work. But like, if you can mix them in with guys that, cause even at the pride, like there's guys that have been playing rugby on, like on the pride that have been playing all through high school or even earlier. Right. And it's like, they get mixed in with some of the crossover guys and that helps. That's probably just helps everybody's development realistically, but it's also being like, you know, it's also again being oversaw by like Jamie Cudmore and like a really solid coaching staff and everything to kind of help help the new guys kind of, I guess, mix in with the guys that are more familiar with the game or have been playing it for a lot longer too. Well, it's a, it's the same concept as having foreign players in Major League Rugby, is you have this group of players that have played the game 
for a significant period of time that can then lend their experience to the younger Americans. If the, if the, like Dallas was going to have no, like very few older Americans, like Connor Cook and Chad London was like it, like all the, almost all the Americans on that team were young. Like they were kids. Like, I mean, Connor Mooneyham, who I think is an MLR ready player at center or wing. Um, and he's very mature, like as a person, um, was going to be like a median range, like American for that team at like 23. Like they had a bunch of like 21 year olds. So yeah, I, I, I think something like that, if we had something like that, it would be more effective. Um, but again, not in the hands of the guys that lost political power and decided to break their toy. That's sort of my my opinion on that. <coughs> um, yeah. Um, I know it's been a long show, guys. Uh, thank you for hanging out. We're going to try to be more regular. Um, we will be back every week during the season. Uh, I just kind of wanted us to get out of people's hair, uh, you know, during the current time. And uh, I, whereas I know some folks, you know, the Rouge rugby, I mean, I listen, I think I listen to at least your show every week and I think you guys have been doing a great job. So um, when I go running and stuff, but um, for at least our team at Earful of Dirt, I just wanted to give everyone some space and to breathe um, because we all have day jobs and stuff. So, um, and when we go deep and it's going to be like 23 straight weeks of rugby, um, you'll probably like me a bit later um, when you don't hear me in your podcast. feed. <laughs> So, um, closing thoughts from North of the Wall. Oh man, just uh, thanks for inviting me on again, man. It's always a uh, always a fun time chatting with uh, the folks south of the wall. It's a, I feel that it's a, it even feels a little bit warmer just even through the Zoom the Zoom call or whatever we're using here. Um, it just so uh, you know and. I mean, honestly, it's just fun. I think, like, you know, as much as Canada and the United States, if they, they compete on the field, it's like we're kind of, in a way, we're all kind of in the same boat, especially with sort of trying to figure out those developmental pathways and, you know, how to make the player pool in MLR better. So it's always uh, always a good time chatting with you guys. And maybe uh, we'll get you guys on. We'll do a big uh, Grey Cup recap. We'll do some Canadian football to start off one show. <laughs> Oh, that would be great to see the CFL back. I used to watch it on Thursdays in the summer. There you go. Yeah, exactly. I man, it's we, it's weird that it's like they just took the whole year off. It's uh, it's kind of weird. And I guess it'll usually kicks off in July. I'm not actually sure when it's starting back up, but it's always I would like when back when gyms were a thing. Um, I was I would run on Thursday nights, and I would like click over to ESPN, and I would watch a watch a Grey Cup match so um yeah um you know it's i i one of the things i've noticed is like what are they, like do you think that canadian player i don't know this like i i am going to throw some darts and say that it's gonna happen next for the 2021 collegiate draft do you think canadians are eligible oh 
do I think? I hope for sure. I think I think what we've seen this year is that I mean, with the amount of like the pride guys that have been picked up, or even guys like Hank Stevenson that went to Dallas, and we'll see the results of the dispersal draft or something. But like, I mean, hopefully he's still in the league. Um, that there's definitely MLR teams definitely want the Canadians in uh, the university Canadian athletes. So well, like Frazier Hurst, who Frazier is Hurst, yeah uh, from Utah, yeah, like, literally just graduated, just graduated from UBC. And like a couple of years ago, we would have said there's no way he's getting a visa. Yeah, right? exactly. And I think that's great. And um, and I mean, even like the situation in Utah too, where it's like I think Baska is the only other scrum half that they have officially signed. So I mean. Yeah. That looks like a really good situation for Hurst to, you know, even if it is the 21 jersey, get a lot of playing time there. So I'm looking forward to seeing how he develops. And so, I mean, ultimately, yeah, I think like I don't see like if these guys are getting visas, that gives me hope that it's going to get a lot easier for everybody to get a visa. And then therefore, by the time the draft, the next draft rolls around, that they'll be able to be eligible or, you know, at least have a wave or maybe even have like a side draft of Canadian only players if that are, you already know are able to get visas instead of maybe risking the pick or something like that. But um definitely looking forward to the day where Canadian players are included in the MLR draft. Greg, what are your closing thoughts? I'm also looking forward to that day. Uh, hey, it's, yeah, it's good to be back. I think, you know, it wasn't you know, the whole world shut down, including the rugby world. There wasn't a ton of rugby to talk about. And I don't think, you know, anyone has well served us getting on here and spending an hour, you know, going through like the third string signings of every team every week. So I think rugby's come back and earful dirt's come back. And I'm excited for a new year of rugby in the USA and Canada. And uh, always, always good to have Derek on. Yeah, most of the time, I think we're we try to really be really focused on Major League Rugby and the Eagles, and there are a bunch of other podcasts in the American rugby landscape that I'll also talk about club rugby. Um, I think it's just there's only so much time, and you know we're we're just trying to remain pretty focused. One of the things that I did see, and you can confirm this because you had a board meeting, um, Craig. Um, I read that it's actually um, postponed next week. It was postponed, so we could have done this last day. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I'm tracking and I'm tracking that um, U.S. the USA Rugby Senior Club Council has chosen to cancel uh, club championships for this year, which makes total sense um, generally because I think the only people that are playing are in Georgia and Florida. And New Orleans and and Louisiana, like yeah, those are the only states I know that are playing senior rugby right now. There is youth rugby. There's youth rugby in Arizona right now, but there is no senior. We're rugby. in the process of trying to schedule some friendlies, you know, for for sometime in the spring, but still, we're still not even back to contact. So, yeah. Well, we will see you guys later. And as always, I'm Aaron Castro. Thanks to Craig Gardelli and Derek Brissett. Thanks for listening to Earful of Dirt, the Major League Rugby podcast. Connect with your hosts via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Earful of Dirt. Visit our website at earfulofdirt.com or email us your thoughts and questions to earfulofdirt at gmail.com.